Ladies and gentlemen, the company of Jersey Boys would like to remind you that the taking of pictures and the use of recording devices are strictly prohibited. Please take this time to turn off all handheld communication devices and please refrain from any calls or texting during the performance. If you would like to enjoy our hard candy or soothing lozenge, now would be the perfect opportunity to unwrap it. Thank you. Hi there. Hello, hello. Good things, good things. Or not. Yes? <laughs> well, is there anything else that you would like to say twice? Now I can't remember. Hold on. No, you can't. <laughs> no, it was, well, what I usually say is, um, oh my gosh, what do I say? I say? Hello, hello, welcome, welcome, good things, good things. David, how are you doing today? I I'm doing I'm doing really good. It's it was it was a good day and um the the sun the sun is down, the moon is out, the clouds are parted. Um I'm not a meteorologist. I'm sure y'all know that by now. Um but I observe nature, you of know. Course. So and yeah. and it's nighttime and when it's nighttime the moon is out, yes. right? That's the way it works. It, good night, moon. Good night, stars. Good, good night, air. Good night, monsters everywhere. You have Van Morrison, if that's correct. If you have the the, the nursery rhyme, the lullaby, yeah, everything. That's and it. of course, as Frankie Valley says in the movie, with, uh, with the moon, the stars, and everything all thrown into one. Um, right. Exactly. And, and we say that in every intro. Have you noticed that every, every single intro, intro we say? <laughs> if if you can if you can tell us when was the first time we did it, then. We won't give you a prize, but we'll give you bragging rights. Um, it's gotta be. Let us know. The DM it's us. Be our pilot. Silhouettes. Yeah, <laughs> it's probably it's probably the pilot. Just DM us. Silhouettes JB Podcast underscore on Instagram. Let us know. Um, <laughs> and we will cool. give you a prize of some sort. We are working yeah. on Jersey Boys merch, so definitely keep a lookout for that. It'll be fun. But you know what? This intro is a bit of a mess. And our and our <laughs> very, very special esteemed guest today will probably be like, yo, hold up, start over. Go backstage. Let's what is wrong over. with you? <laughs> Go back to one, please. Let's from the top. Lights. Y'all, camera, you know, with the camera and Sherry and all the other. Yes. Reset right now. Reset. Um, but. Which, this is so cool, we have with us a very special guest in this episode. We are thrilled to have a sit-down, arranged a sit-down with Richard Hester, the production supervisor of Jersey Boys, or as we like to call it, the godfather. The godfather of Jersey Boys. He is the supervisor for all the productions of Jersey Boys internationally. When it was on Broadway, national tours, the Vegas production, Toronto, London, the Norwegian Cruise Line production, Australia, South Africa, Asia, the Netherlands, all of them. He formerly supervised all of the show's technical elements, but has since switched to both directing and technical supervision. He graduated with an English-slash-literature degree from Columbia University and has Broadway, brought, 
Broadway. <laughs> Broadway. 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 Stage managing credits include Gypsy, starring Bernadette Peters. The one and only. Great revival. Great, great revival. Sweet Smell of Success. Annie, Get Your Gun. One of my, also with Bernadette Peters, one of my favorite revivals of all time. That's high the, praise. With the new, the new book by Peter Stone. And those beautiful new orchestrations. I'm sorry, Bernadette Peters and Peter Stone. That sounds like a match. And 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 um, Tom Wopat played played Frank Butler. I mean, can, it doesn't get stars any are in alignment. <laughs> stars, it doesn't get any show. better than that. Um, a delicate balance. The old neighborhood. Titanic. Oh boy, we could talk about the Titanic. Oh. Um, the Phantom of the Opera, The Red Shoes, The Secret Garden, and national tours include Wicked, Phantom of the Opera, and West Side Story. If that doesn't tell you any about this man, he is he is the god the godfather, Michael. Like I I cannot wait to keep talking. I'm just, come to if us. you don't know who we're talking about, like Come on. So more about this wonderful person. He spent 10 years on the road with Patti Lapone. I fucking love Patti Lapone. I have a lot to say about her. People shit on her and they should never. Um, and he was he's also the producer of Broadway Barks, an annual New York City animal adoption event with Bernadette Peters and with Mary Tyler Moore. What we find the most fascinating about Mr. Hester, honestly, this is crazy is his ability to write in such detail almost every day. We're very lucky to be Facebook friends with him, and we notice his posts are told from both a bird's eye view and a worm's eye view, a very tough writing technique to achieve. He is able to take everyday matters into historical context as well as bring you back down to earth. And if that doesn't tell you why this man makes hit musicals, we don't know what does. We are so excited to pick his brain about all things Jersey Boys. So, friends, please welcome the man of the hour, Richard Hester. Woo! Hey, everybody. Hey. What's up? Uh, uh, you know, hanging out here in the Upper West Side. Woo! Ayo. My favorite. Do you watch The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? Uh, I, we started watching it, but I'm not allowed to watch it while Michael, my husband's not here. Okay. Mm. Well, okay. When you're together again, please, please watch it. You, you'll love it. It's my favorite thing like, next to Jersey Boys. Yeah. Well, she, a, a TV show? That's the one. Well, because she, she, of course, lives on the Upper West Side, but yeah, in a slightly in better apartment than I live in. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I believe, there's an article. It's, it might be like an $8 million apartment. I'm sure I'm wrong on that number, but it's pretty close. Yeah, it's, it's gargantuan. It, right. We call the marvelous Mrs. Maisel the Jersey Boys of streaming television. Yes. <laughs> Truly. It's so it's so well written. Everything is so focused and so like everything has a reason. And I mean in the just in the first season and you you'll 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 notice them. There 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 are a lot of Jersey Boys references. Actually <laughs> kind of almost direct Same quotes. Time period. It's really really funny. Same time period. Both in 1959. It's really funny. It can't beat that. And it's 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 um, Gia. Gia put me onto it, and I am super grateful because it is now also such a huge part of my life. Oh, Yay. amazing! You'll love it. Well, uh, I, we'll have to pick up. Yes, <laughs> oh, please. It, well, because of course, Jersey Boy is Italian, Maisel, Jewish life, and so and David you know. and I, so I'm Catholic, and David is Jewish, <laughs> and he does the best Sebastian Maniscalco impression. Please so take it away. He says, you know, Italians and Jews. Very similar. 
you know, they say same corporation, different division. Division. <laughs> <laughs> Chipotle. It's the, it's yeah, the there you go. Oh, you'll love it. You'll love it. Uh, but anyway, so when it comes to just you know production, I, I can't. This is this is my favorite thing to talk about so we have so many questions for you um but we really want to just get to know you first because of course david and i love to do our research not stalking research um <laughs> there's a fine line but there's not too too much out there about you so could you tell us just about like like your upbringing and when you went to columbia like did you always want to get into theater please tell us everything. mystery okay well I don't think I had any intention of going into theater at all. No one in my family had a clue about theater or performing arts of any kind. And one day when I was in seventh grade, I think, I was going to the bus and my drama teacher, who I swear to you's name was Mr. Wonder. (laughs) Mr. Wonder was standing outside where people got onto the bus and he was basically yelling, saying, I need a volunteer to work on the school musical. And I literally went, okay, I'll do it. And that's as much thought as I put into my entire career. It just happened literally in that moment. I went to Columbia kind of thinking I would go into theater, but my father said to me, I will pay for you to go to school, but please just don't major in theater. But then like sophomore year, of college, I was bored. I, I, I kind of knew that I wanted to go to Columbia so that I could live in New York and get like a head start on figuring out how to live in New York. I had a friend of mine and I actually went into New York one day and I can't remember if we cut class that day or we certainly did it later on, but we went in and we got standing room to see two musicals. The first one was three dollars and it was for standing room and it was side the original company of side by side by Sondheim and that night we got standing room for the original company of Annie (gasps) and and that was five dollars so I was for eight dollars I got to see two spectacular musicals in one day and it was like that was the end of it and my sophomore year I got the idea that I should send out some letters to some theaters and say that I'd be willing to volunteer just to see if anyone would respond. And I sent out three letters, Playwrights Horizons, The Public, and The American Place. And Winhan Min at The American Place called me up literally the next week and said, hi, I'm Winhan Min. I run The American Place Theater, which is where the Laura Pels is now. At the to- at- Oh, so that's, that's mm-hmm. Roundabout. Yes, exactly. So, wow. it, But it started out as the American Place. And the American Place is where people like Sam Shepard, a whole lot of people like that had their first plays. And Wynn really, Wynn just passed away this past year. I think oh. he was like 96. Um, wow. But, but he really championed writers, Marie Irene Fornes. Uh, and he, said, he, he called me and he said, we've got this weird mime guy coming in who and we, he's got a show and I don't know, but we need a production assistant. Would you be willing to do it? This was my sophomore year in college, and I was like, sure. So I went down and I started working on Bill Irwin's *The Regard of Flight*, and it was Bill's first show in New York. No one quite knew what to expect, and they I volunteered. This was like 
in the fall of that year, uh, sorry, in the spring of that year. And we got up to June at the end of my fresh, uh, my sophomore year. And they were like, we're going to extend into the summer and we want to pay you. So we're going to pay you $100 a week if you'd be willing to stay on. And I was like, oh, you don't have to pay me. I, uh, honestly, that's fine. I, I'm, hap- I'm happy to stay. And the production stage manager, they were, they were like, no, we're going to pay you. So the production mm-hmm. stage manager was a woman named Nancy Harrington, who's Diane Paulus's associate director and production supervisor for all of her productions. Oh, man. So Nancy wow. Harrington grabbed me by the throat, pushed me against the wall and said, don't you ever say anything that stupid again. Someone <laughs> in the theater offers you money, you take it. And fair enough, lesson learned. What happened in my junior year was I went to London and spent the whole year in London. And, you know, they say, if there's anything else you can think of doing besides acting, you should do it. And I had been there for like a week and there were auditions on campus for a play. And I was prepped and I walked over towards the audition and halfway there, I was like, oh my God, if I get into this play... I'm not going to be able to go and see any theater here and I'm not going to be able to travel around and look at stuff. So I'm like, I'm not doing that. And that, even though I continued to sort of want to act, it was kind of that moment that made me realize that that's not what I wanted to do. Mm. Everything that, that I've done just came to me, but, Mm. but I think that what I had or what led me towards some sort of success was the fact that I followed my heart. A lot of the time. And sometimes it was like, I don't know why I want to do this thing, but I want to do it. And those have always turned out to be the biggest decisions of my life. And they really have, they've been, they haven't necessarily made any sense, mm-hmm. but they ultimately, I mean, my decision to do Jersey Boys was exactly that. It was completely a non-decision. What happened? How did it happen? I was... Doing uh, Gypsy, actually, with Bernadette. And what had happened on Annie Get Your Gun, Peter Lawrence was the production stage manager. And Peter brought me on to be the first assistant. And he said, this is what's going to happen. We're going to work through to the opening of Annie Get Your Gun and and with you as the first. And then I'm going to leave and go and do something else. And you're going to bump up to PSM. And that's what happened. So we opened Annie Get Your Gun. I, I, it was my first musical PSMing on Broadway. Um, it was totally fun. It was a blast. Then when Gypsy came along, Peter said the same thing. And then as we were in, in the middle of rehearsal, whatever it was that Peter was going to go forward and do fell through. So Peter's like, okay, I know I brought you on this to take over as PSM, and you can totally leave if you want to. But I'm going to stay because my gig fell through. And frankly, I'm also having fun. And I was like, well, I'm having fun too. So I'm not going to leave. Jim Woolley was the assistant. Jim Woolley had already taken, we were already had started taking over, like switching over responsibilities. So Jim Woolley had started doing a whole bunch of the stuff that I was doing. And so Honestly, for the year and a half that I did Gypsy with Bernadette, I didn't do much of anything, except we had a daily backstage thing 
that we used to call dick talk. So <laughs> what would happen is there was like a 20-minute gap somewhere, maybe towards the end of Act 1. I think it was towards the end of Act 1. So somewhere, and I can't remember what happens in Gypsy at that point, but there was nothing to do for like 20 minutes. And so I would sit backstage and some of the farm boys would come over and we'd start talking. We called it dick talk because no matter what we started talking about, we ended up talking about dick. I, and literally Peter Lawrence would get on the, say, Richard, you actually have some work to do. If you could finish up dick talk and get to the office, that would be great. So, so we, we got our closing notes and we knew that we were closing. And Robert Strickstein at the Dodgers called me in and he said, we've got this whole list of shows coming up and we need stage managers for all of them. Just come in and pick one. I mean, he, he was just like, I, I, I don't know, whatever. And so I went in and I looked at the list and there was a whole bunch of stuff. Dez's The Wiz was on that. Uh, he, he was doing, the, he did, which he ended up doing in La Jolla. Um, the Beach Boys musical uh, was on it. Um, Good, Good Vibrations. That was Titus. Yep. Titus. Exactly. Yeah. And, there was a, and there was a whole bunch of other stuff in there too. And then on the list was a thing called Jersey Boys. And I was like, Jersey Boys, what's that? And what the uh, Fuck exactly. And Strickstein said, it's a musical about Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons. And I was like, oh, no. And he's like, oh, it's in La Jolla. And Des Bakanoff is directing it. I was like, really? Black's Beach is in La Jolla. Huh. How long is it? He's like, it's about two months. I'm like, OK, I can do that. Now, one <laughs> uh, that was and that was literally it. He's like, OK, well, I'll set up a meeting with Des. Talk to you later. And that's as long as the meeting took. As many times as I have directed the show, Des still directs it better. I mean, by far. Because Des will come in and go, well, why don't you just do that? I'm like, oh, You're okay. like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> how um, how often have sense. you directed the show? 15, 16 times. 17 wow. times. Where? Uh, the first one I directed on my own was in Holland, um, which was, I, I, I had always said that I could sort of do it. When we did the production in South Africa, Wes Tyler was our associate director. Yes. And, and so what had started out early on, Bill Fennelly and Holly Ann uh, Palmer is her name now, I think. She was Ruggiero at the time, were Des's two assistants in La Jolla. Holly has, it's like, I don't want to say an idiot savant because she's not an idiot at all, but she's, she does not forget anything. If yeah. Des says, yeah. move over to three on October 3rd, she can remember that he said, move over to three on October 3rd, the following March. After we did La Jolla, and a couple months later when we were moving to Broadway, Bill didn't want to be Des's assistant because he wanted to direct on his own. So Holly came in and um, Alex Timbers came in to be the other associate director. Oh. So once we started running... I was maintain. I was the PSM, and Holly was keeping, you know, basically being the resident director. And then we did the first national tour, and I took a leave from Broadway, and we got the first national tour up and running. And then I turned over the show to Trip Phillips, and I and I was going to go back to New York, and the producers called me in and said, "You're not going back to New York." And I was like, "Oh my God, why not?" I was like, "I'm being fired," and they're like, "We we have." Two companies coming up, Las Vegas and London, and they're happening at exactly the same time, and we can't figure out how to do it. So you're going to help us get that together. And 
it was at that point that I then became the supervisor. I stopped being the stage manager and I started uh-huh. supervising. So West came in and started setting the blocking for the companies. He did Australia. He did, Des did most of the first national tour, if I remember correctly. And at the same time, our associate choreographer, Kelly Devine, started working on her own stuff. And Danny Austin came in. What happened was we did the South African company. The South African company was really weird because we cast the entire show in South Africa. We rehearsed the entire thing in Johannesburg. And then we teched and opened it in Singapore. You know that amazing hotel, the Marina Bay Sands, with, with the boomerang-shaped yes. pool? Yes. So that wow. we, were, we were one of the first shows that performed in there. And the, they actually brought us down to do the, the actual gala opening. We, we did, we did oh, a number with dinner, and Diana Ross was dessert, I think, which, which was amazing. So, no big deal. Such good company. But it, it took, we had to bring 18 Americans to get the show up and running in Singapore, which cost hundreds of thousands of dollars in airfare alone. And so the producers were like, okay, we can't do this anymore. We can't afford this. And so I said, I know how we can do it with six people. Wes was already, Wes has already said that he was going to be leaving to work on his own stuff. So I said, if I do West's job as well as my job, that's one person. Mm-hmm. Danny is two. Ron Melrose is three. Lee Austin, who is... Jess Goldstein's wardrobe supervisor is number four. Andrew Keister, who is Steve Kennedy's associate sound designer, is number five. And Patricia Nichols, who is Hal Binkley's lighting designer associate, is number six. The six of us basically got South Africa up and running. But so Utrecht in Holland was the first time that we, I was like, okay, do it then with six people. And I was like, great. And then I was like, oh my God. Now I have to direct this. And, right. like, and it was like, okay. And by the way, the entire show was in Dutch. It, right. It, it, the, the singing was in English. The singing right? was in English because okay. Bob Gaudio doesn't want the lyrics ever translated. translated. Um, because like the, this is where I lost. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, because the, the songs were actually hits all over the world in right. English. So, so it was like, okay. And, the it was during the pizza scene where I realized I didn't need to understand Dutch. It doesn't matter. You can direct it in gobbledygook. And, and I got to the point where I could actually tell that people in monologues had dropped lines because, yes. because of the, the emotional connections were, were not happening. Oh. So, so, mm-hmm. It was actually, that was a kind of fantastic way to start. Wow. So, so that's exactly, I think, well, does this sound correct? Like, so a production supervisor, like, is, as we know, like, as by definition, is maintaining the integrity of a show. So when you're directing it and just watching it, like, for the tone of the show, but also for content. So, so if you can tell that they're dropping a line, what what did you do? How did you? Well, I'd say okay. Well, the good thing is that everyone yeah. in Holland speaks English too, mm-hmm. so I could actually direct in English. Yeah, which is yeah. great. So, so the, the 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 you know when they were the the I could direct them normally. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, the, the way you would normally direct in a show, and I was like, okay, stop, stop, stop. You screwed up. 
go back and do that again. Right. And, and they were like, how did you know? I'm like, you screwed up, right? And they were like, well, yeah. I'm pulling a fast one with you. But, but, you, but you had to get the stage manager to give them the specific line notes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I'm, I'm like, what, 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 um, whatever, whatever happened in there, you missed it. So go back and, and figure it out. <laughs> who translated it? A Dutch translator who then translated it. We then gave that translation to somebody else who translated it literally back into English. So, in other words, the Dutch translator had to take some liberties to, because there's so many idioms in Jersey Boys. And I'll give you an example of what that means. We had a very rudimentary translation for the auditions. And at one point, the reader, who was a woman, said to me, you know, I, I know America's a different place than Holland, but I don't understand why she isn't more upset that Tommy hit her with a sledgehammer. <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 no. He didn't, he hit on her as in, you know, he made a pass at her. Like things like the uh, Rahway School of the Arts. Mm -hmm. Didn't get it at all. And I'm like, okay, he's... Sarcasm, facetiousness, and idiom just didn't translate. So we had to like figure trifecta out trifecta right there. Sarcasm, facetiousness. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you just hit the trifecta. Yeah, exactly. Then you have a problem with with like in English the word sign has multiple meanings, right? It's a sign, Tommy. Means there's a sign on the stage, but it's also an omen or a portent. There is no such sure. word in Dutch that means the same thing. So what we ended up with was some vague version that I was told translates to it is written. Everything that's come after Holland was was easy. The, the, right. you know, each <laughs> subsequent production has had its um, challenges. Ultimately, when we moved off Broadway and cut down our tour to be able to do one night stands, we had to cut the cast size. So right. I came up with how to cut the cast size without cutting a single line. Then we got to Norwegian Cruise Line where we had to, we kept the original Broadway size cast, but we had to cut 40, 35 to 40 minutes of material out of the show. And so Ron and I cut that and I, I cut the script and then went to Ron and Ron then cut the music. And then Ron and I performed that for Des. And Des was like, no, put that back in. No, put that back in. And like one of the things that got cut was the whole Donnie Stosh car scene. And Des was like, you have to put that back in. And I'm like, no, we're not putting that back in. Because no, you Des. need the scene before that and you need the scene after that to make that scene. You need to set it up. It's and. And I was prepared for this. I was like, it's seven minutes and 45 seconds of material. You want that back in. You've got to find seven minutes and 45 seconds because we are already over time as it is. They will not let us go one second longer than we have now. Pretty much the next thing, if it happens, will be to take the shorter version that we did on Norwegian Cruise Line and try and do it with the cut-down version of the cast that we currently have off-Broadway and on tour. It's about moving furniture on and off and costume changes and all of that sort of stuff. And 
you know, God bless him, Danny wasn't part of the cutting. So at the end, when Des had approved what Ron and I had done, I was like, okay, remember how we had an entire paragraph to do this transition? We now have a line, one line. And Danny's like, we can't do that. I'm like, well, interestingly enough, we're going to do it. So let's figure out how to do it. We are continually trying to keep options open. And there is always the possibility of being able to do a much smaller production in a much smaller kind of venue. Uh, er Early on, we tried to do the production in Brazil. And this was before we cut it down to six people, too. Um, But we couldn't couldn't make the money work. And so I at least kind of vowed that's never going to be a thing that stops us again. We're going to figure out how to do this. And if we are going to do this in a showroom in Macau or something... We're going to figure out how to do it. There's several ideas of how we could do the show without the full set as well. And frankly, Mm -hmm. there's a couple of cities where the tour has done the show almost without the set. So it is doable because the thing with Jersey Boys is that it's not really about the surround. It's about the story and the music. My husband, who's seen the show more times than anybody should ever see anything, um, for a long time, he would say that his... The first favorite time he saw it was on Broadway. And the second favorite time he saw it was in the, the tour rehearsal studio. And that the experience of watching it in the rehearsal studio had the same emotional impact for him as watching it on Broadway. That's beautiful. Goal achieved. You know, I would have loved to have been at that little performance you and Ron that's that's wow talk about how did you do it you didn't even need a script in front of you i'm sure it was a table read i i read all of the parts to ron ron sang all of the songs ron wouldn't say this to you but ron melrose is a genius i don't know anybody who can do what ron melrose does what he did with that underscoring is such genius and what happens to every actor who does it is, you know, we start working on it just, uh, usually I, I'm with the direct addresses, I'm with them one-on-one. And we just work through the nice. direct addresses. Then, you know, they get on stage and, and the music starts happening. And it's like, oh my God, oh my God. And I'm like, I swear to you, this is the most difficult thing that you will have to do. And afterwards, not only will you not notice it, but you will start to rely on it. Like Barry Belson going through his speech has got to be listening for those downbeats. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he's got to be insane. So it's like, okay. So, and, and at the beginning, I can hear them. It's like, sorry, you can't listen like that. You've just got to go. Well, um, so just to backtrack, yes. when you were first told like, hey, we're moving to Vegas and London and you were taking over as pure supervisor, what are the steps you have to take to literally get those shows on the road? Like for each page, are there notes that you have that's written down? Are there Excel sheets, whatever you have? Or, or yeah, h- how do you have it all together? They were building the theater in Las Vegas before we started rehearsal. They were, they were, it started at the Palazzo, Yes, right? which was under construction. So there was no time after London opened to rehearse the cast for Vegas, because tech started three days after the opening night of London. So what we ended up doing is the tour was playing, the tour had opened in San Francisco and it played there for a couple of months. 
So what we did is we rehearsed the Las Vegas cast. The tour continued on to a new set. The Vegas cast went into the San Francisco set and performed there. The tour, we put in the what we call the speed set in Sacramento, and then they started touring. So the Vegas company was up and running in San Francisco. We went back, rehearsed London, opened London. By that point, the theater was almost finished. We were dry teching in there. We had to wear hard hats. They were literally pouring the cement on the floor around the stage while we were dry teching. One of the assistant lighting does designers if not both were pregnant so they were in on respirators because there was like i mean it was being built around us so so that was a colossal mess so what you do in that circumstance is emiliano perez is our prop guy and i had worked with emiliano from when he was the assistant prop guy on annie get your gun we put together prop packages And at one point, we had six prop packages moving around. So it's like, okay, we need a prop package for the Vegas company in rehearsal. But clearly, the tour is still using the prop package in San Francisco. So we got a prop package and put it there. We had like four sets in storage at one point, and I think we've cleared most of them out. Oh, my because they were all they're all too big for what we're doing now. Way too big. Are any of them right. for sale? They're I think they're long gone. We've we, we oh, but, man. But, but like we we I, and the stairs. Toronto and Chicago got cobbled together and sent to South Africa. Clara Ziglarova designed the set before the script was written. We literally got the script off the Xerox machines warm and handed it out to the actors on the first day of rehearsal as they came in and. Then we read it through, and that was the first time anybody had heard the script or read it. being in that room. Well, honestly, none of us had any expectation of the show whatsoever. Nobody there. We were there for all of us, cast, crew, everybody was there for the beach. But then we got got the, the script, and it was like, oh, my God, this is actually good. I, I mean, it really was... It changed quite a bit over the course of that rehearsal, but it was seriously good right from the get-go. And Marshall and Rick were, we were, at the time, there were no rehearsal, rehearsal studios in La Jolla. We were in a classroom, a, a big classroom, but we were in a classroom. Oh, love that. Um, and Marshall and Rick were down the hall in a little office with no windows. And they were <laughs> pissed off. They, one or the other of us would go down the hall and go, okay, Des... This is what Des would like you to do. We'd like a little bit more of this, a little bit less of that, whatever. Go to the dungeon. And Marshall Brickman was, in particular, completely furious. I I mean, he and do do you are you guys aware of everything Marshall? Oh, Annie Hall, Manhattan. Uh, Yeah, the the Muppet Show. Yes, big time. Uh Yes, Marshall. But Marshall Brickman had never written a musical before, and quite Uh frankly, neither had Rick Ellis. We were getting uh, new pages every day. Des would, I am unclear because I wasn't there while they were putting it together, but I think that the Four Seasons kind of Rashomon idea was Des's. I think he structured it. Des always said that his 
his initial idea for the show was four microphones to three microphones to two microphones to one microphone. The way the show is directed, the downstage center point moves in every scene. So when you get to the strand, downstage center is downstage left. Thank you. That's why it's off center. Yes. Yes. So that's that's why. Okay. So every single scene is a different time on the clock. And I actually had a paper clock and I would tick off all the directions that the scene had happened in already. If I had only thought that this Jersey Boys was going to be Jersey Boys, I would have kept some of that stuff. He knew he wanted to keep upstage center for um, dawn. So, you know, 12 12 o'clock was dawn. He knew that was going to be the most iconic scene of the show. And the beginning of uh, Fallen Angel is uh, is also at at noon. So then he'd be like, okay, what time haven't we done? It's like 3 o'clock. We haven't done now. I don't know. 7.15. Okay, good. Let's do that. So so when the actors are, are performing, the idea is we're voyeurs. We're looking at what's going on on stage. So the actors are not cheating open at all. They are totally acting in the direction of where downstage center is. So it's crystal clear when the guys turn out front to do the direct addresses. Right. They're breaking out of the reality that we're, we're all voyeuring, and now they're breaking up and talking to us directly. And talking to us tonight. Yes. yes. Everything is accounted for. Everything. Yeah. Everything is planned. I mean, down to the minute, literally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> the second. Literally. There, there is the, every once in a while, and now it's really rare, an actor will ask me a question about something that I haven't thought of or Des hasn't thought about before. There are things that I direct in that like, I never want Des to hear. Des, Des will be like, no, that's not what it is. I'm like, okay, stop listening to what I said and look at the final result. Is the final result <laughs> what you wanted? Then that's right. But mo- most of them, Des doesn't come in until like the day before our first preview. The day before. I see. So, so, but, okay. but, and at this point, he trusts us to do his show. When I'm directing, I'm not directing for myself. I'm directing the way I think Des will want it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, right. sometimes they're, because each set is differently, sort of arranged, and the, the, the distances upstage, downstage, stage left, stage right, are all co- completely different. The proportions, yeah. Yeah, my, my, one of my favorite things that happened was, you know, Lorraine's bed is at an angle. And it's got to be out of the way of the spiral staircase, which changes position radically. The original Broadway production, the staircase was in the, in the audience. And there was a long pathway up. And it slowly moved upstage. When we were touring, we had to stop doing that because you couldn't get it out into the house. So then we did it like in the middle of the stage. And then it, that became really complicated space-wise to be able to get the bridge in. So then that's when we pushed it all the way up against the bridge. But it's been all over the place. So at some point in some production, getting Lorraine's bed to be in a position that makes some sense that she still has access to the staircase sometimes really involves some weird gyrations to make happen. So, and, and, and there was w- one where Danny had said it in a, in a rehearsal. And I came in and was like, that looks awful. And he's like, okay, well, fix it. And so I was like, I moved it down. And it was like, oh, that doesn't work, does it? And I moved it up. And um, I was like, no, that doesn't work either. Moved it down. That didn't work. And I was like, 
here, this works. And Danny was like, look at the spikes. And it was like exactly where Danny had put yeah. it. So Des comes in to see the show and we're rehearsing and Des is like, that looks stupid. Move it downstage a bit. Move it yeah. back. Move it, move it over there. Okay, put it there. Oh, that looks good. Keep that. Like, that's yeah. where the spikes are. When you watch Weasel, <laughs> it is just, there's a, the same kind of scene happening yeah. too. Oh, this is hilarious. Somewhere really early on, I suggested, I think it was for the uh, London tour, and we had a, a UK set designer. I suggested putting the studio window and uh, studio window on a track underneath the bridge. Mm-hmm. And I got laughed out of town. And, <laughs> and, I, and I was like, I swear it can work. There's no reason why it can't work. And we now have, and the same thing with the Brill door. I'm like, just slide it on. Yeah. And they were like, no, 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 can't work, can't work, can't work. Well, that's what we're doing now. That's what we're doing yeah. now. Yep. Was it your idea to have the double spiral staircase on the UK tour in 2014? The, the, we, the associate designer came up with that because it had to fit in the truck. And the long, single-access staircase just literally didn't fit in. So it, it, it took up much more space, much less space to be able to actually, so that that's, one of them was spiral and the other one was spiral, but square. So it turned on itself. To go back to what you were saying about like, everything is upstage center and everything revolves around that. Um, Because like David and I, growing up in high school and college, we were always taught to cheat out. Everybody is taught to cheat out. And it's... The main thing I have to do is just like, guys, stop cheating out. That's not what we do here. That's not Jersey Boys. Once you start saying, I'm sorry, what are you looking at? You know, well, what reality are you in? And, and the, the thing with Jersey Boys is that there's different levels of reality sometimes happening in the scenes, but they're very specific. They're all real. So you, right. like in the sit down you're in a real room. Why would you face the corner? And it was so successful in Jersey Boys. And Jersey Boys is not the first show that's done it. But a lot of shows have come along that have emulated Jersey Boys and emulated that style of it. Honestly, Hamilton. Yeah, yeah, and and they also have the bridge. And the bridge, right. (laughs) And they they had our lighting designer, too. I know how... Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Indeed. Beautiful. beautiful, Do you have any stories you want to share about Howell? Hal was really a truly, truly lovely man. And he he was so fast. He hated being the one that everybody was waiting for. He literally hated it. And during tech, all the time, he'd be like, are you waiting on me? I'm like, no, 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 you've got plenty of time. Go, go, go. Do, do whatever you want to do. And he would get like 10 or 11 cues ahead. You know, Des, Des could say to Hal, could you just make that look like a lefty thing? And Hal would be like, so quick so a quick question none of these are really quick <laughs> questions but so when all the major productions of jersey boys were preparing to close you know in that 2016 2017 time uh to make room for that new era you know starting with you know new world stages uh, the fitted CETA tours uh ncl the new uk and australia tours how like were you the first to hear about it because of your role as the- yeah th- those were totally unconnected items the the broad oh really the, the, the broadway show just closed 
And in fact, and London, and London closed out. They weren't, they weren't closing to make room for anything. They were just closing. And then after that, somebody came up with the idea of doing it off Broadway. Right. And we were all, we'd already been out on the road for decades. And the, as we were figuring out how to do off Broadway, we brought some of those changes into the tour to make it more economical. We started out with something like 21 trucks. We now have like three. And, oh. and, and I mean, it, we really had to cut down the show technically a lot to make it work. And pretty much the tour looks like New World Stages. It, it's mm-hmm. a similar production. Yeah. The, the, the big difference on the tour is that the automation track, there's, we don't travel with a floor. We just travel with Marley. So the automation track is actually on the stage. It, okay. It's like a two nice. by four going all the way across. Did the budget get cut because Broadway closed? No, what what happened was when you're on tour, there's only so many times you can play the major markets before you exhaust them. The only way to keep the tour going is to now go into smaller markets. Well, the smaller markets can't do a week long. For a long time, we did stops that were a week. And that was we had to cut it down to make it for a week. Then they were like, you know what? We've run out of those markets, too. So now we're going to play places like Yakima, Washington for two nights or one night. What these guys do is literally do the show, break down the set, put it on the truck, get onto a bus, fall asleep, wake up the next morning at eight, load in the show, take a shower at six, do the show, break it down, put it on the truck, get back on the bus. So, So we had to make it so that the entire thing would fit onto one bus. That that's why now, like when you're on, when you're seeing New World stages in the tour, the band is on stage, upstage, un- underneath the bridge, which it never was anywhere else. But it's there because there simply wasn't time to be able to establish rooms. And in some of these weird little theater, there are, there's no place to to put the band. So we had to make sure that no matter what kind of configuration we were in, that the band would always be there. And the only way to do that was to put the band on stage. How often do you go um, overseas to, to supervise? Well, the, the, in the heyday of Jersey Boys, I tried to see every company every six weeks. Like the overseas companies would be more like every three or four months. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And it's sort of about taking, you know, taking the improvements out. That have happened in the absence. And you and Ron would go in together. And uh, to uh, so, what what's, and what, what started course. happening now is that I would go, I go in and I go, you know what, you need to send Ron out to the tour right away. Or you need to send Danny out to the tour. Or I, I'll say, actually, we're in pretty good shape, I think. What is the process for the length of a national tour? Or even of Vegas? Like, how do you... Or like, how is it set up schedule-wise? And how do you know it, when it, to close one tour? It, it's all about the money. It's all about what, yeah. what you can do. And the, the, we have a booking office who puts together the tour. And they have to work with each individual theater and say, okay, we're here. We can only get X amount of miles away in one day. What are the theaters in that radius that we could then play the following week? So we've booked Chicago. So now you can't book something that's 70 miles away because in theory, those people could have come in and seen it. 
So you will have to book something that's like 200 miles away. So what are the cities 200 miles away from Chicago? That you could, and so you book your, you end up zigzagging all of, you might come back to the place that was 70 miles away from Chicago six months later, but you have to keep moving and the booking office has to figure that all out. So the, the it's not easy. It is, it is literally like a puzzle. You know, we're coming in here. Do you have a slot available here? And they're like, no, but we have a slot available here. And we're like, okay, well, so you can't do Chicago, but when we play Minneapolis, we could then get to you from there. Now, when talking about the tours, when you go from full production contract to CETA, so two questions. One, when did that switch happen for Jersey Boys? And two, did you have to close and then, or like to, to restructure? Or like, how does that work? Well, what we started doing is when we got into the smaller markets, a lot of those markets don't operate over the summer. So for the last, I don't know how many years, the show, the tour goes from like September to June, and then it closes for the summer. According to equity rules, you have to be closed for six weeks before it can be considered a new production. If you open less than, or even go into rehearsal less than six weeks later, then all the people who did it before have to, you have to do it the same way, basically. first refusal? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Well, in theory, it's the same production. Right. Because you haven't closed. So they, they're, they're there. So by cl- when we closed for X amount of time, sometimes people would get jobs in that break and then leave. By the end of the tour, everybody's pissed off. So we usually waited right. until like a month after it had closed before we started asking people back. So they forgot how pissed off they were. <laughs> <laughs> On tour two, when we did West Point, we, we, we specifically redid it as a CETA tour and we cut down the cast. And the way we cut down the cast is that there are four seasons and four guys. The four guys each have to cover one of the seasons. That's why we don't have anyone old anymore. Because, because the, that guy has to play, cover Nick. The guy who plays Jip has got to cover Nick. So, so the guy who plays Bob Crew has got to cover Bob. And the guy who plays uh, Norm has got to cover Tommy. And the guy who plays Pesci and Barry has to cover Frankie. So that's... How long did it take you to come up with that system? Was it quick? Well, I, all, every time we do this, I've been thinking about it like in the back of my mind for a long time. When they actually say, go uh-huh. ahead and do it, is when I have to sit down and actually work it out. <laughs> but I can usually work it out in a day or two, show it to Ron or Danny, who then say, you can't do that because of this. You can't. So because of this um, scaled-down cast, um, does Frankie Camp become more important and, you know, for finding these people, at least just for Frankie, you know? Frankie Camp started because it was so hard to find these guys. And it's not necessarily so hard to find them as it is to find guys who can do it eight times a week. Right. Like at, at Joe point, Bari... Like- yeah, Joe Bari and Aaron De Jesus are like machines. Superstars. They really they 
their voices are always so healthy and so clean. Hydrated. And there's other guys with voices that are equally as lovely who just can't can't, do that many performances. Yeah. Uh, John Lloyd did the original, he did it eight a week. And when he came back and did it again, he, he, he couldn't do the eight a week. Right. And we didn't want anybody to get permanently hurt. That, that would have of been was terrible. Was Katie Agresta on the team already when you guys were at La Jolla? What happened in La Jolla was David Neronia was the original Frankie. David had a spectacular voice. I mean, it was ridiculous. And he couldn't sustain it over the course of that time because he hadn't sung in years by that point. Katie was a friend of Gaudio's. So Gaudio suggested Katie and Katie started trying to work with him. But in a way, it was already too late. The, the original, Ron probably went into this too, but the, the original four seasons, what they did is record Frankie's voice and then Frankie sang along with his voice and it created that layered sound. And that's what we did in La Jolla. We recorded David Neronia's voice and he sang along to his own this voice. Was before the, this was before you guys were having people double Backstage. Yes, this, 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 we were trying to do it the way that Frankie actually did it. What happened was when David lost his voice, he started having to lip sync to himself. I mean, thank God we have them on the recordings because he, he, he literally had to do it. So we realized that if we came into New York with anything taped, that Michael Riedel would be all over it. That honestly was one of the big problems with my cut down version of the cast was a, a lot of that doubling then got cut from New World Stages and the tour because there simply weren't, weren't people to be able to do it. What Frankie Camp really is, is an extended audition process. So we realized we needed to investigate these guys more. There are things like we want to get them tired and then make them sing. The hardest thing that Frankie has to do in the show is sing, I let it get away because it's in high belt, it's not in falsetto. And he is as tired as he is in any point of the show. We actually had to let a guy go who couldn't do that, who literally couldn't get those notes out. So what we would do is we would wait until we had a hundred or so people. Um, they They would either get submitted to Mary Sugarman at Tara Rubin's office or someone would recommend them or whatever, and we'd get like a hundred resumes together. We would do a day or two of auditions where we would bring them all in and then out of that group, pick the top 10. And that's mainly because there's just not time in a week to do work with more than 10 people. Out of those 10 people, maybe there's one person that we're like, that person could be a Frankie and then maybe two people that could be either a Pesci or a Swing that maybe could grow into being a Frankie. So mm-hmm. we use the Swing One position and the Pesci position to train future Frankies. And it's, some of them make it through that and some of them don't. And it's, it's brutal because you've got to kind of look like you're Italian. We've had... <laughs> Of course. Uh, you know, and, and, and you know, Joe, Joe Bwari is um, Arabic. Uh-huh. I, I think he's Lebanese. Um, Sean Taylor Corbett is half Native American. So, like, the, 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 we've gone in, like, w- different directions. As long as they're just vaguely, you know, 
Guido ish. Vaguely. <laughs> we, we, do, we do the best we can. But, and so they've got, to do, they've got to be able to dance, they've got to be able to sing, and they've got to be able to convincingly play Frankie Young and Frankie Old. In our experience, very few people can do both. Almost all of them are like solid as young Frankie and a little bit of a stretch as old Frankie or the other way around. Some of the, some of the right. older Frankies, like God love him, Grant, our South African Frankie, who's uh, done the Norwegian Cruise Lines a couple of times. I think he's, you know, 42 years old now. And so like when he's playing a 14 year old, there's always a little bit of like, well, OK, we, we, we just won't. <laughs> and, and Ryan Malloy, who was our original Frankie so in tall. London. Uh-huh. He, he, the, we have to cast everyone around him taller. Serious? Taller. Yeah. I saw right. his, um, the, the first time I'd seen it on Broadway um, was in September of 2014. My first Frankie was when, when Ryan Malloy came to do it on Broadway. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, because in London, he was surrounded by people who were taller than he was. When we brought him in to do Broadway, it's like, Everyone not so like, much. R- R- Richard H. Blake was like, like Ryan was here and Richard H. Blake was right here. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> well, and we've heard stories too, like you know, like Aaron nine years auditioning, like to finally yeah. get Frankie, and, and, and with Corey. Well, and, and Aaron was Pesci first in Vegas for right. a long time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's just so cool. And then, well, and Corey told us about his crazy Bob audition story. And Danny was pushing. He's just like, get that move right. Or, so or, like, many amazing, out, amazing stories. Well, yes. And, and Michael Fasano was telling us that, you know, it's, it's pretty like grueling. Too. Yeah. Michael, so Michael went what, through a lot of What are of key it. things that you have to, to, to look for in your hour with them? Like what, like if they can't get something, how, how much, how much do you push them? The, I, I try and push them yeah. in that hour as much as I can. And they're, yeah. There definitely have been people where I like give up, where I'm like, uh-huh. I can't get this person there. And there are some people who are physically the least likely candidates for it, but their voice is so good or their acting is so good that, and I, I honestly don't know what an audience's response to some of these guys is. Um, and, you know, the hard thing is that the guys themselves are the worst judge of who is right and who is wrong. And it is extremely difficult to get them to understand why they may not have been cast. And also, there's some height things, too. Like, if all if we've cast a bunch of short seasons, we're not going to cast a tall Frankie probably in that company. We're going to wait until we can find a taller company to put that Frankie in. Um so there's all sorts of kind of, and sometimes it just comes down to somebody says, I hate that person. And you're like, okay. I mean, and there've been, there've been oh, people that, 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 you know, higher ups have definitely disliked that I have pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. And, and, you know, the, the, a lot of them, I was like, I had to convince to do smaller parts like they only wanted to play Frankie and I had to convince them it's like you're not going to get cast as Frankie but do if you if you get into the pipeline and start doing it people will get used to you and and a lot of it is people getting used to somebody who looks off the off the norm from what we so have is is it like damn you make it into the you're if you're in the family you're in 
Well, you know, once in Jersey Boys, always in Jersey I Boys. I kind of right. love that. <laughs> you were gonna, you were gonna say something That's... about Corey. Yeah, Cor- my memory of Corey's first audition is he came in and I was like, okay, dude, that's a lot. There's a lot of you there. You, you, we need to, like, pull it down. <laughs> that's <laughs> yes, <Corey>. totally. <laughs> well, well, Corey, David, and I are all basically from the yeah, same neighborhood. We're, we're, all, we're all from Florida, Florida so in that South Florida area. And um, he's... he's sure. yeah, Corey, Corey walking into a room is kind of an event. And that energy is fantastic. But when it's, like, full bore, it's like, dude, okay, we have to look at other people on the stage, too. So just... Pull it, pull and it down. He really did right. such a great job. Like at, at the end of the day, when he got up on that stage, it was just like, I, I, he, he was, Electric. he was really one, like my absolute favorite Bob. I always say that my, my favorite quartet were those first four guys at New World Stages. They were the, the, we, we used to sort of, we, we, we had our sort of dream teams. And then we also had what we called the Sea of Tranquility Company, which is the people we never wanted to see do those roles again, and we would do it, send them to the moon. <laughs> to the moon! And, to the moon! And we, <laughs> so, of course, you know, the, like, to the group, like, it's, we have a question. Why does Tommy never to say moon. to the moon? <laughs> it's, it's something well, like, people in, in, say in, all the time. You would the, think you in, would in, say in that. The movie, no, in the movie, you yeah. know, when, when they're all, um, when Bob first comes into the group, um and they're all they're all toasting it's after after vincent and uh vincent and michael lamenda had that exchange of like oh you moved the pearls oh you did a nikki special a salute and then so they're all they're all (laughs) wine glasses and vincent's like chin chin 100 years to the moon that's that that should have been the next one it's like to the moon (laughs) well but that worked because now this is just us really getting into the script tommy said to the moon and then Frankie, as we know later on in the movie, when he's talking to Francine, says, like, I love you more than the moon, the stars and everything all thrown into one. That would be brilliant because the character development is all about Tommy influencing Frankie and Bob influencing Frankie. And Tommy starts with these big vocabulary Jersey words. He starts off with, I don't right want to be ubiquitous, bat, you know. but, uh, you know, like, so he starts like that. Frankie ends with copacetic. <laughs> so that would have been a beautiful little extra moon. vocab in well, there that I well, the, 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 that's just me the, the thing about the direct addresses and the language in the direct addresses is that the, the, the show takes place in 2005 and it's pretty much yes. frozen there because otherwise okay. we'd have to like Tommy DeVito just passed away we're not going to change the show to reflect that There's the, the, the guys the way I've been directing it recently, and it's, it doesn't fully scan out this way, but that the guys who are doing the direct addresses are speaking from around the time of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame until they get to their final monologues, which is now, or 2005. So everyone who's playing a season is playing two characters. They're playing the guy in 1990 who knows the whole story and they're playing the young version of themselves who doesn't know the whole story, who only knows what's happened so far. So the two characters have different objectives and different wants. If, if the reality of the guys who are doing the direct addresses is that the four of them 
are on stage together just talking. It's just one long monologue. Does that make sense? Okay. So the way the show is structured, it's like they're pressing a button and showing a, like, oh, yeah, look what happened here. And pressing a button and showing that scene. I see. Right? Yes. So, so, so here, like, and here's an example of what, what happens. In The Strand, when Tommy calls Frankie up on stage, he doesn't necessarily, in the show, that's the first time to, Frankie's ever been called up on stage. Frankie may not even know that Tommy knows his name. My theory is that Nick, Frankie's followed these guys around and, and Nick has said to Tommy, you know, that guy can actually sing. And Tommy's like, yeah, fuck you. He can't, he, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. He's a little whatever. So Frankie's, the, 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 the three guys are up there. They're, they're playing and Tommy is, they're bombing. They're bombing really badly. And Tommy is like, okay, what do we do? Kid, come up here and sing. He doesn't know whether Frankie can sing or not. He, know, he knows nothing about it, right? So he, Frankie comes up on stage and he's spectacular, right? And, and everyone starts waking up and everyone starts paying attention. And Tommy's like, yeah, I knew it all along. Bullshit. He didn't know it at all. He made that up. Now, 50 years later in the direct address, he says, so I set up a little surprise for him. It's utter bullshit. He didn't set up a surprise for him. He, in the future, he is now coloring our perception of this scene by saying that he planned to do that all along. And that's what people look at. But in fact, he had no intention. He, he had no idea that that's what was going to turn out. If Frankie had been sitting there, he would have called up one of the girls. Yeah. Yes, well, a, a lot of stuff in the script had to be made more dramatic or made fact. more or, or less complicated. One of the big problems in the reality is that Nick Massey and Nick DeVito had the same name. And P, it, it confused the hell out of absolutely everybody. And we spent a lot of time in rehearsal figuring out that that's, Tommy spends a lot of time saying, this is Nick Massey, not to be confused with Nick, who's my brother, because it, Nick was important to the beginning of the story, but then he goes away. So it's actually three times mentioned, I think, yeah, in there. Yeah, three times. And it's, 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 three, it's, it's, it's like a master class on how to be able to move an actor to the next, next character in his track. <laughs> but, but, it, but, it, but it's also to... What, I don't know that we make it any less confusing for the audience, but what, what it does is make the audience realize that we know the difference. So they stop worrying about it. Yeah. We've tried it with two and it doesn't work. People are confused. And we tried it with four and it was like too much. So like we, 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 three, three times and, and he's got to say it periodically and, and kind of get in there. But so. And like, on, on, I love this moment of staging. On the, on the last time that they mention him, he's he's wearing his prison uniform. He's smoking the cigarette. He's like, hey. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> and all of that is to clarify which Nick is Nick, because Nick Massey also does a has a has a, a, a that's me right. to the exactly. audience too. Well, this is all amazing, and <laughs> we are blown away as always. We're always blown away, and this is just wonderful. We're just going to take a short little break. We'll be right back. And we're back. <laughs> so that's Debbie's thing. It's like, and we're back. Like he has to have that click, and I love it. Uh, guilty. That's me. <laughs> we're in the Zoom studio with my best friend Gia Doxy, brilliant co-host. Thank you. Sorry. And we got Richard Hester, production supervisor, to the stars. Um, can you tell us about your? Instagram handle <laughs> uh, Toaster. at RH Toaster. If you want people following you on Instagram, of course. Yeah, where where did you get the name? When uh, the first time where I actually had a computer with email was on the tour of Phantom of the Opera, which was like 1994, and we got new computers. I had one of those Apple gray things that was like two inches thick that was like really square and we set up our email accounts and I couldn't think of what I should be and the one of the assistant stage managers on Phantom used to call me Toaster Oats because <laughs> I, I guess it sounded a little bit like Hester H- Toaster Hester whatever but he used to call me Toaster all the time mm-hmm. so the, I, I was like, well, that's what it should be. Toaster NYC. Perfect. Toaster I, NYC. And, well, do people did, ever call you Richard Hustler? Because you hustled to get where you are today. No, that's for sure. Not until today. Yay. Oh, okay. Well you, are, you are my third person. With... <laughs> so, Michael Fasano. We call him Michael Fossetto. I'm like, how do you not call yourself this already? Um, Corey Giacoma. Right now, he's Coco Giacoco. I'm like, Coco the King. Hello. <laughs> and then, and then Richard Hustler. <laughs> so you told us that you wanted to study in New York, but where are you originally? From? Okay, so my I was born in Arlington outside of DC. We then moved to Princeton, where my sister was born in New Jersey. And from Princeton, we moved to South Africa. Wow. So my mom is South African, my father is American. My parents sort of split up a bit. And my mother took my sister and I to South Africa, and we lived with my grandfather for a couple of years in South Africa. And then my parents got back together, and we moved to Bergen County in New Jersey, which is where I spent most the rest of the time going back to school. And then we would go to South Africa sort of every other summer. Well, this explains your travel bug and how well you know Jersey. You lived in (laughs) Bergen County. That's Absolutely. I, I am actually... You know, technically a Jersey boy on yes, some Yes, you are. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and so, well, like a cockroach all over the <laughs> So when you got the production supervising position, were you happy so you can go back and see your family in South Africa and you can go well, wherever? It, my mother's brother lives in Australia where his three kids also live with their families. My mother's sister still lives in South Africa. One of her sons lives in South Africa and the other one lives in Toronto. So I am the one person in the family who's been able to connect with every single cousin, 
which is kind of that's quick. wonderful. Yeah, and really you always have hopefully a guaranteed person to get buy a ticket to the show. Exactly. <laughs> hey, hey, Richard, can you get me house seats? For yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, my, my, it's actually one of my mother's favorite things. Was you know try. Is is my son going to be okay in show business? And I'm a little worried. I'm a little. Oh, you can get house seats. Excellent. Keep going. <laughs> there you go. Oh, your family sounds wonderful. <laughs> yeah, they're they're pretty good. My father unfortunately passed away a few years ago. I'm Actually, so sorry. W- oh, while sorry. I was in South Africa doing the show, is, is when he passed. Oh no, I'm so sorry. I lost my father too. It's horrible. Oh uh, yeah, it it was. But I, I I was happy that my father got to see both my sister and I successful and my parents always came to see every single show i did and those first couple of shows in new york some of them were really right out there in like basements of theaters and and they were there for all of them they came they came to see them and i did a production of uh harold pinter's the birthday party at csc i was the production stage manager of it and it was a spectacular production and pinter was in rehearsal with us which was Truly amazing, and but, which of course meant nothing to my parents whatsoever. But Peter Riegert and David Strathairn and Wendy McKenna and Gene Stapleton from All in the Family, and All in the Family was a show that my whole family used to sit together and watch. We all watched every episode together. So Gene, in a lot of ways, was the first person that I worked with that was famous enough that my father knew who she was, mm-hmm. and not only knew who she was but really liked her. So my parents came to see the show, which, you know, birthday, Harold Pinter, I don't know that what they got out of it or what they didn't get out of it, but the I was able to introduce them to Jean afterwards. And I told Jean that my parents were coming. And she said, what do, what do they think about you being in show business? And I was like, well, you know, they, they, I, don't, I think my father is hoping that I'll grow out of it. So I introduced them to Jean, and Jean was truly the most gracious woman you could ever possibly imagine. She had a little bit of that Edith Dingbatty thing going on, but she was very intelligent and very grounded and lovely. Mm -hmm. And she said to my father, you know, your son is doing exactly what he should be doing. He's really good at his job, and I've worked with a lot of people. I mean, she really, and my father was like, oh, oh. And I swear to you that after that point, my father stopped worrying about me being in show business. The fact that Gene Stapleton and I were working on the same production and Gene said that I was doing what I should be doing really kind of, I mean, it was an enormous gift that she gave me. Yes. Um, just to sort of take that pressure off my father. Wow. And, and that, all that worry and all that. Yes, gratification, validation, yeah, totally. full circle too to, for your to, career. That's, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and he, he got to see me become production supervisor of Jersey Boys, and travel all over the world. I mean, for 12 years, I would say I spent 175, 150 to 175 days a year out of town and in multiple continents, in multiple countries. And he sort of got to see me do that, which was really also a gift, which was great. Did he like Jersey Beautiful. Boys? Oh, yeah. I remember growing up, my mother hated the Four Seasons. <laughs> Oh, that, that guy who sings like a girl, it's awful, it's awful, it's awful. <laughs> but, but they loved Jersey Boys. And the, the, when we opened the show in London, the opening night party was in the London Museum of Natural History. And the centerpiece, the big hall in the middle has a brontosaurus skeleton in it. And there's these, all these little alcoves off to the side. 
And at the opening night party, which was took place in that room, Frankie was in one of the alcoves. And I took my mom over to introduce her to Frankie. And as soon as I got there, Frankie was like, this is, this is terrible. Somebody's got to be here with me. There are people coming, there are people going, and I, I, I need some, and there was something else that was wrong or whatever. And I said, great, Frankie, I will absolutely take care of that right away, but I'd like you to meet my mother. And he immediately turned into Frankie Valley. Yep. And he took my mother's hand and kissed it. And my mother was like, oh my God, oh my God. And I don't think she washed that hand for months. <laughs> <laughs> So what have your interactions been like with Frankie and with Tommy DeVito? You did a wonderful post about a few encounters that you had and stories that you heard. Um, but what's it like actually meeting them and working with them? Bob, too. The, the, Bob and Frankie. I, I, spent, I spent much more time with Bob and Frankie than I have with Tommy. Yeah. Bob and Frankie are fantastic. They are, you know, they are who they are. And sometimes Bob, like the character in the show... Like Bob refers to his onstage person as my guy. If, if he has a problem, it's like, my guy seems to be a little off in this, this moment. <laughs> the, the, really, like the, the, only person, the only person who, Bob didn't really care who was cast as him, but his wife did. And so the, the I, and I, she I, recently passed too. She right? recently passed as well. Yes, she was yeah. truly lovely. She she was all she wrote the lyrics to Oh what a night oh, and who loves night. you oh, and who night. loves you exactly. Yeah. So what the fuck? <laughs> so, so, <laughs> we freaked out when we heard that. So so Judy she did that. She freaking did that. So that Judy so would come to see the show somewhere, and I would and I would look at her, and she'd go, "The Bob was good," uh, and <laughs> she she just really wanted them to be cute, Bob at the beginning, didn't really understand how theater worked. And we, there would be meetings or whatever, and he'd pull me aside afterwards and say, what was going on there? And I'd explain it to him and he'd go, hmm, okay. And he wouldn't say much during the actual meetings. And about four years in, he knew what he was talking yeah. about, and he started participating. So I'm not sure whether I created a monster or not. But, <laughs> but there was one day when I was in London, and... I was walking across Waterloo Bridge, and it was like the most perfect night. St. Paul's was lit up to the north, and to the south, the Houses of Parliament were all lit up. The eye was going. And Waterloo Bridge, I'd seen something at the National Theater, I think. And so that I was walking back to Covent Garden where we were staying. And it's truly one of my favorite places on the planet is that bridge. It's, it's so beautiful, and I, I just love being able to see the National Theater and everything that's there and all that. I, I worked with Nick Heitner on Sweet Smell of Success, who then ran the National for years. And he, he brought some amazing things there. So anyway, I, I loved it. So I'm walking across the bridge and my phone rings. And I look down and I see that it's Frankie Valley. And I'm like, oh, okay, what is this? So Frankie gets on and he's, he's just seen one of the guys who's playing him. And he said, this is how this guy sang Moody's Mood. And he sang me all of Moody's Mood the way that the guy he saw sang it. And he said, okay, now this is the way it should sound. And then he sang me Moody's Mood all over again, the way it should sound. And I'm sitting there on Waterloo Bridge going, oh my God, I am in London, England, and someone has paid for me to be here. I'm getting paid. And Frankie Valley is singing to me on my phone. How did this happen? And then my next thought was, 
God, I wish he'd stop. (laughs) (laughs) Well, why did he call you and not Ron? I don't think he could get through to Ron. He he would he he, and and I think his issues were actually more with how this guy was acting it than how he was singing it. So the the the, he get fired (laughs) that Frankie. He did not get fired, but we ended up having to, you know, do some work with him. And and, I, and, and actually what Frankie, like Frankie said, it, you gotta... what Frankie said was not wrong. Uh-huh. It, it, it was not a helpful way to tell the actor how to fix it. But but the, the, Fra- Frankie picked up on issues that the rest of us recognized were actually there. We, uh, G and I were just watching uh, La, uh, Midnight in Paris uh, earlier today, and um, beautiful, beautiful movie. One of her favorites, and uh, I, I, I had watched it for the first time today, and I absolutely loved it. But so on Amazon Prime, where we watched it, they, you know, they have those facts, they have the whatever. So they had a, they had a, a trivia fact that Marion Cotillard was Woody Allen's first choice to play Adriana and uh, he really wanted her to play it and uh, he called her at home and they talked for an hour and she said that her first thought was like I just got off the phone with Woody <laughs> Allen like Allen. that was Woody <laughs> Allen's voice and yeah. <laughs> is, is that so something that's, that's you, you get over beautiful... like cause it doesn't seem like you you've been starstruck like you've worked so closely with patty lapone and bernadette peters and mary tyler moore like oh my god um, so all these superstars. yeah d- d- what's it like constantly working with these superstars you you are one yourself for the record <laughs> <laughs> well, the, <laughs> you truly at, at one point we were doing we were we had a meeting for broadway barks um at uh broadway cares and Bernadette, we were all there, and there was an issue happening in Schubert Alley, which is where we do Broadway Barks, with something being built. And Bernadette was trying to ask what the issue was. And I was like, well, we could just, it's just across the street. Why don't we just go down and have a look? I can show you what, what it is. And she was like, oh, okay. And so she and her assistant, Patty Sassente, who's like one of my best friends, and um, Scott Stevens, who uh, works at Broadway Cares, but is also one of the Broadway Barks producers. We all walk down into Schubert Alley, and we're like looking at this piece of scaffolding, and we're looking at what, what they were doing. And of course, Bernadette Peters is standing in Schubert Alley, so people start recognizing her. And I'm like, oh my! And, and after a while, there's a crowd around us, and I'm like, I'm so sorry, I totally forgot you were famous. So we had to actually, you know, get her out of there. <laughs> I love it. So we, it's not, it's common knowledge that Frankie and Bob were not necessarily close with Tommy. So when you took that picture of Tommy and Frankie together, what was the energy like of that conversation, if you remember? Here's what I'll say. Those guys are all family. And in your family, there's an aunt or an uncle or a sibling that you just don't talk to. But you got to go to weddings with them. And so you end up next to them. It's not that you don't love them. It's just that you hate them, if that makes any sense. That is the perfect 100%. way to put it. Yeah. So, so th- that's the impression that I got. They're so comfortable with each other. They've known each other for Ever. 70 years or whatever it is. And, but, but they're not speaking to each other. I am friendly with both of Bob Gaudio's daughters. I am friendly with Frankie's daughter. 
and I'm friendly with Frankie's granddaughter who played Mary Delgado in mm-hmm. New World Sages. So, and it, it, it's like all of that family stuff. We, we went to, I can't remember whose wedding it was. Anyway, we went to a wedding and Jared Spector was playing Frankie on Broadway. And Spector. Love him. He's amazing. Jared? And, and I, I went with Rick Ellis because Roger Reese didn't want to go. So I went along with him as his date, and uh, Jared was going to perform. And Jerry Blavitt, who is the real person that Barry Belson is based on, who's a, a Philadelphia DJ, was kind of the DJ of the wedding. Who the hell was getting married? Maybe it was Lisa Gaudio, and this was the reception afterwards. I, I think it was Lisa Gaudio who was getting married, and this, this was the reception afterwards, so not the wedding itself. Okay. So at the table... It's me, Rick, Jared, Frankie, his girlfriend at the time, ah. and, and Tony, his daughter. His girlfriend was a little young, shall we say. Anyway, then Bob and Judy were sitting at the table, and then two other people were to my left. Frankie comes up to me mm-hmm. and for fully 10 minutes is giving me notes on the show in the middle of about 150 people who all want to talk to him. Yep. And he's standing there talking to me with this in- mob of people. Standards. I mean, it was like surreal. And so, and finally, I turned to the couple that's to my left and I said, I'm so sorry. I, I, you know, you guys have gotten totally lost in the shuffle. Um, I'm Richard Hester. I work on Jersey Boys. And the guy said, hi, I'm Mikey Petrillo. <gasps> and I'm like, get <laughs> out. Get out of town. So here's the story with 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 the cop in. Yeah. So now, now we know it's not two. It's not Officer Mike and Officer Patrillo. It's one person. It's Mike Mikey Patrillo. Yes. yes. Okay. So originally that character's name was Stanley, and yes. it, which was not a real person. It was just whatever. So uh, about three or four years in, Bob asked Des and Rick and Marshall if they wouldn't mind changing the name to Mikey Patrillo. Because Mikey Petrillo was a guy that they grew up with. He was, a, he was a cop. His family were cops, but he was also a musician. When Bob Gaudio is playing in the jazz trio up in Bergenfield, it's Joe Pesci, Bob Gaudio, and Mikey Petrillo were the three people playing in that trio. So Bob wanted him as part of the show because he'd been with them all through along. So Mikey then became a permanent part of the show. He and a bunch of his buddies came to see the show without telling us. And during the, they were up in the balcony. They, they literally bought cheap seats. And it's like, yeah. dude, you should have told us we would have gotten you like house seats. And he, so he's during this performance, suddenly in the middle of the scene, there was all this like noise from the balcony. And the, the guys up there were like all doing the wave. And it's like, <laughs> and we we're like, the, the, and the, the, we actually sent an usher to find out what the, problem was and the usher came back and said it's actually uh, the guy says he's he's in the show his name is mike petrillo and we're like get out but we never <laughs> he, he would he disappeared before we we, we could you know bring him Find backstage him. and meet him and make a fuss over him those are the moments i live for i love this that was the best yeah. that is the best so i guess you're you're the person to ask about this we have heard tell well, it's been con- – it's not like, oh, some stupid top secret thing, but it's been confirmed. But, like, it, we've heard about the Bible, the Jersey Boys Bible, which is the 
the the dramaturgical uh uh booklet that you guys have for the actors and for everyone involved um but it so but what we don't know is is it a is it a book is it a binder is it a pdf like the, well, how does it exist in the world well, well Alison Horsley was our original dramaturg and she put together a lot of the original information and Des always does dramaturgy he d he does a couple of days on a new project where he talks about like when we did summer we sat around and talk about disco and what was happening in the 70s and when when Jersey Boys first started Allison was actually on staff at um UCSD so she was she was there and Des got her to put together material to sort of talk about immigration what it was like to be Italian in the 50s what the costs of things were uh all sorts of stuff like that um and periodically she would have to go and do some research over the course of it like when we were looking for a song no one knew the song cry for me including bob gaudio bob we were trying to figure out a song that would work in that spot and finally at one point bob turned to allison and he said would you go and look in the catalog mind you gaudio and crew have written something like 2500 songs and cry for me was like a non-song that was on a B-side of a song that wasn't even a hit. It's a B-side. Yeah. It, 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 it wasn't a hit. No one knew what it was. And so Bob said, there's some song with something about cry in the title or crying, I cry, whatever. So go and fi find that. I think that might work here. And so Allison <laughs> went and came back with like three songs. He's like, cry for me. That's when I was thinking of. And so the, the, they played it and we were like, yeah, that one works. Put that in. But just to clarify, if you could tell us, is the Bible a book? <laughs> is it like something? Or, that, is it like something that you keep like, backstage? There, there is yeah, there is a binder with all sorts of crap in it. But uh -huh. when I do dramaturgy now, I don't use that at all. Okay. I, w what I've done is I've gone on YouTube and ripped off videos from all sorts of different things, um, like oh. blues singers. I mean, we go through music and all that stuff. And so I have videos for people to watch because reading out the dramaturgy is just stultifyingly dull. Um, <laughs> so, so we kind of work through the script and talk about stuff and people can answer, ask questions about what's going on. And then like I show the trailer to the blob. I, yeah. I show the trailer to Tennessee's partner, which is, Rhonda Fleming and uh, Big Girls Don't Cry. Yes, which actually what? doesn't exist. He never, huh. he never slaps her. <laughs> that never happened. And in, fa in fact, you'll notice in the movie mm -hmm. they don't they don't mention that at all. There's nothing on the uh, on the TV screen because what happened was someone from the movie called up to say we can't find the clip of uh -huh. that happening. And we're like, well, there is no clip. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so, so well, th th that was a th so that was a Clint Eastwood clip in the movie, right? Yeah, the, I, I, I can't. I can't remember what they what they actually had on there. It was like a double slap. Pop, pop. Yes. So, so in answer to your your question, yeah. th yes, there is a binder of dramaturgy, but and each company sort of gets one, but it's so it's nearly a foot thick. 
uh, with all sorts of stuff. And the actors are allowed to have access to it. But we, I think we stopped touring with it because it's so heavy. But I have everything digitized on my computer. Gotcha. And so we, we will, while I'm talking, as soon as I can see that people are nodding off, I'll like show a movie. Awesome. <laughs> or show well, a little clip of something. We, we, we've got our own box. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. I showed you one. Yep. <laughs> for, for, for we know this is an audio-only podcast. You guys can't see what we're holding up. But this is um, the program book that um, they sold this. Um, they, they, they sold this at all the major companies in the heyday, yes. right? Yes. Okay. We, have, we are basically drowning in Jersey Boys swag. Well, each, each company has its own mugs. I'm sure you are. Yeah. I have a bathrobe. I have blankets. We have <gasps> oh, rubber. Amazing. We have uh, Jersey Boys rubber ducks. I want a duck and a I've blanket. I've seen the rubber duckies. I've seen we the we have a, a Jersey Boys ducky. Monopoly game. A, a full out Monopoly game. Can, I've seen it before years ago. Can we purchase it? The, 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 I think you have to go. I, the only place you'll probably find it is eBay, honestly. Okay, I'll look the, it up. There are also Jersey Boys flip flops that have Jersey Boys carved into the bottom so that when you walk on the sand, it leaves the word Jersey Boys behind. <gasps> oh my God! We have to do that when I get back home. Oh my God, that's we have crazy. To, okay, we, we will be scouring Thank you the web for telling us. For this yeah, stuff. This is there's amazing. all sorts of junk out there. I I, no at one point, I had like eight different tote bags with Jersey Boys on it. And. Some of them I've like given to Broadway Cares and all, all of that, and and yeah. my family all has more Jersey Boy stuff than they know what to do with. Oh well, they don't want it. Please just send us <laughs> photos. We love to just post them. And, and I, I I I I bought the 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 track jacket they were selling at New World Stages. That's, That's a, a nice great jacket. Yeah, love well, that. Jacket. I ha- I have to show you something, Richard. So um. From the movie, do you remember? Well, does this? It's the Pope and Frank Sinatra. Does that ring any bells to you? No, I mean okay. I, I know that that's pretty much what the Italian families have up on their walls. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, so in the movie, the first scene you see at Frankie's house next next to the front door is that beautiful like wooden thing, Pope clock, Frank Sinatra. So I did. <laughs> that's just my room. Homage. homage I mean, top-notch class. Um, top-notch. <laughs> oh, but that's so cool. I need all the merch possible. That'd be great. I, I actually don't... I'm trying to think if I have any... I don't think I have any Jersey Boy stuff. I Sort of very early on, I had... I stopped putting theater posters up and all that stuff, kind of figuring that my, my work was my work and my life was my life. Um, Michael, my husband, has a couple of things that are up there. He's got this, uh, he, the, they did a musical of the Honeymooners out at Paper Mill Playhouse, and he oh. paid Ed Norton. So I've got his, someone made a Ken doll of, ah. of Ed Norton for him, and we got that up. <laughs> and we, he, his Broadway debut was in Love, Valor, and Compassion, um, and he was a cover, and he went on for Mario Cantone, and so we've got a framed thing of the insert from the program for that day and the ticket, uh, uh, some, someone in the audience's ticket. But I don't think I have any Jersey Boys stuff with me here. Where would it be? Do you just get rid of it? Oh, I've got, I've got a, a thing in the basement that has okay. a 
a chunk of stuff. Up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that concludes part one in Secaucus, New Jersey, the Upper West Side of Manhattan, Miami, and Astoria. Thank you so much for listening to Silhouettes JB Podcast Episode 14, Unwrapping the Hard Candies with Jersey Boys Production Supervisor Richard. Hester, Richard, thank you so much for joining us. And everyone, you have to understand, this man would travel around the world for work and for pleasure, we hope. And we wouldn't be able to get five minutes with him if the world was normal. But he actually spent five hours with us over Zoom. We condensed it to about three. So we hope you enjoyed the first hour and a half and you gear up for the second half where we deep dive into the early years segment of Jersey Boys. Now, please follow us on social media on Instagram at SilhouettesJB Podcast underscore and on Facebook at SilhouettesJB Podcast or Pitcast, as we like to say, for even more exclusive content from this episode in particular. So please do what you got to do. Stay tuned. Have fun and a salute.